We've uh, reached that point in our service where we open up God's Word together and see what it has to say to us. Uh, if this is your first time visiting us with us, welcome. Uh, my name is Tart George. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you could join us this morning. If you are just joining us, we are just beginning a new sermon series on the book of Exodus called A People Under God. And what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is looking at the history of the ancient church in this Old Testament book. And we are asking this question. What does it mean to follow this God and be His people from the very earliest pages of the Bible? And so if you have your bulletin, you can flip it to the back and you'll find our scripture reading from Exodus 1, 1 to 20. And to read for us today is Shen. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture reading is taken from Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Jacob was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pythom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Shen. Why study the book? of Exodus. You might as well ask the question, why study history at all? It was the late novelist Michael Christian who famously said these words, if you don't know history, then you don't really know anything. You are a leaf that doesn't know it is part of a tree. All history is important. We know this intuitively. But biblical history for the Christian is of special importance. 
because it teaches us what God has always been doing with His people throughout the ages. It reminds us most of all, I think, that the local church we know and love is but a leaf that stems from this most ancient tree, one that God has faithfully planted from the very earliest pages of the Bible. You see, the reason we study the book of Exodus is because it gives us a lens to see our most ancient roots. It reminds us that we are part of a larger kingdom that God has always been building. And in our passage today, Moses, the author of this book, teaches us about the early development of this kingdom. He shows us, I think, two truths that are timeless and are always to be believed by every Christian in every age. And they are these. First, God is always advancing His kingdom. And second, God is always defending His kingdom. God is always advancing His kingdom, and God is always defending His kingdom. And so trust Him and stand firm in the faith. We'll look at each of these in the passage. Open with me with this bulletin in your text. As we open this book together, some context I think might be helpful. Uh, you might not know this, but the first word that the book begins with in the original Hebrew is actually a conjunction. The book begins with the word and. And. What a strange beginning. It reads, and these are the names of the sons of Israel. Why is that important? Well, scholars agree that the book of Exodus is meant to be read almost like a sequel to the preceding book or a part two. In other words, it is the continuation of the story that Moses began to tell us about in Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And to fully appreciate the story and its significance to the Christian faith, you have to understand something about both parts. You see, in part one, that is Genesis, Moses describes certain promises that God had made to his people, promises to choose them, bless them, multiply them, and equip them for his redemptive purposes in the world. That's what the book of Genesis is all about. And in part two, that is Exodus, Moses continues that same story. He wants to show us how God begins to fulfill these same promises to his people, even in the midst of extraordinary opposition. This book, you understand, is not just about slavery, plagues, and sacrifices. At its heart, it is about the gradual, miraculous, and unstoppable advance of God's kingdom in the world. It is written to assure God's people, that is you, the church, that in every place and in every age, God will not fail to do the things that He has promised. His kingdom is always advancing and it will not falter. And that is the central message at the heart of this text. Look with me at the passage. In verses 1 to 5, Moses summarizes what has happened up till this point. He writes, And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. He's basically reminding his readers of what transpired in the book of Genesis. 
namely how a group of people called the Israelites who traced their lineage to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came to dwell in the land of Egypt. They are people who we are told have a very special relationship with God. You may recall that in Genesis, God enters into a special covenant or agreement with this head of this family, Abraham. And Abraham, for those of you who don't know, is extremely old, and his wife is barren. They are past the point of fertility, and they cannot have children. And yet God promises that He will give them children, and that through Abraham's family, God will accomplish His redemptive purposes for the world. How? God promises that He will multiply Abraham's family into a great nation that will one day have a land to call their own. God tells him that He will bless Abraham's family, and He will one day make them a blessing to the nations of the world. God promises that He will take them to be His people, and He will in turn be their God. He will care for them, watch over them, and advance His kingdom purposes through them. And these are promises, by the way, that this family clings to for generations. They don't fully comprehend how these things will be, but they trust God by faith that He will certainly do the things that He has promised. Abraham dies, and is succeeded by his son Isaac. Isaac dies, and is succeeded by his son Jacob. Then Jacob dies, and he leaves behind 12 sons. And if you know the story, you'll know that by this time, this family has really been through a lot. They cling to these promises that God has given them, but life has been anything but easy, not at all. At the end of the book of Genesis, they find themselves in Egypt because of a very severe famine. God providentially saves this family from starvation and death through Jacob's son, Joseph. He is a young man who is ironically sold into slavery in Egypt, get that, by his brothers who hate him, and yet God blesses him. God blesses Joseph in the midst of his slavery. And in God's providence, Joseph miraculously rises to power and becomes one of the most valuable and capable officials in all the land of Egypt. He listens to God, and through his actions is able to devise a plan that will save his family and all the entire people of Egypt from famine and utter starvation. And as a reward for Joseph's actions, his family, the people of Israel, are permitted to settle in the land of Egypt and make it their home. And that's where Genesis ends. Genesis ends with a partial fulfillment of God's promises. God has been their God and has watched over them and saved them from certain destruction. But the fact still remains that they don't have a land to call their own because they're now stuck in the land of Egypt. And with a family that is comprised of 70 people, they can hardly be called the great nation that God has promised. And so they're now sitting in Egypt, get that. They're sitting in Egypt doing the best that they can, waiting for God to come and solve this problem. They know intuitively that God is supposed to advance His kingdom through them. And yet, it's not happening in the way that they might have imagined. And it's around this time when they're really starting to wonder, what is God even up to? That something rather unexpected happens. Verse 6, then Joseph died. 
and all his brothers and all that generation. Think about that for a moment. We often gloss over these words quickly, but they would have had tremendous meaning to the original reader. The most important spiritual leaders at the time for this community have just died. The very people who taught the Israelites to trust and wait on God's promises are no longer around. Who are they going to turn to now? Abraham is gone. Isaac and Jacob are gone. Jacob's sons are now gone. Where are these great promises? I mean, you have to understand that these are the people who led them, strengthened them, and gave them hope that God was doing something. But now they're gone. So how is this kingdom going to advance from here? The answer? God's going to do it. God's going to do it. In fact, in every age and in every stage of the development of God's people, God has to do it. He has to do it. It is often the case, I think, in the kingdom of God and in the church that we find ourselves faced with this very reality. Every generation of God's people dies. And when they do, they leave behind a successive generation that must learn how to hold fast to God's promises for themselves. All people die. We know this. But most especially in the church, it would seem that sometimes God's best leaders appear to die at some of the most inconvenient times when the kingdom of God could really, really use them. A quick survey of church history, I think, will show that to be true. When the apostles died, I would imagine that the church wasn't quite ready for that. After all, how could the kingdom possibly advance without Peter, James, John, and Paul? I'll tell you how. God said, I've got this. I've got this. And he raised up the next generation of believers. The apostles were succeeded by the early church fathers, Ignatius, Polycarp, Arrhenius, and Tertullian, who continued advancing this same kingdom. They fought heresy at a pivotal time and strengthened the church with all the means that God supplied. These died also, and God raised up the likes of Athanasius, Augustine, Ambrose, and Christostom, who continued advancing this kingdom from there. Generation after generation, God continued His work. History records the Christian councils, the monastic movement, the pre-reformers, the Reformation itself. All of these examples of successive generations that God raised up for the advance of His kingdom. Huss, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Whitfield, Spurgeon, Moody. All of these people assisted the advance of God's kingdom by their faithfulness for a time, and then they died. But God's kingdom did not Do you get the picture? When the Billy Grahams of the world, or the Tim Kellers of the world, or indeed the Betty McPhees of the world go to their graves, people of God weep, weep. Yet it is also the case that the kingdom of God will not be found lacking. 
Why? It's because God himself is the one who is leading, advancing his kingdom always. And no matter what you may see or perceive about the state of Christianity in the world today, this text assures you that God's kingdom will never be in decline. It won't. Men and women, whether it's in your church, your family, your campus, or the farthest regions of the world, I think Moses wants you to know that God is in complete control of his kingdom. And he's in complete control of his church. He was back then, and he is still to this day advancing his kingdom in the world. And he does that, Moses says, through raising up the next generation and multiplying the faith. Look at me at verses 6 to 7. Moses writes, then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. He's basically saying in the context of Genesis that God is beginning to fulfill his promise to Abraham. He is making his people fruitful and growing this family numerically into the nation that he has promised. And in context, what that means is not just that God is blessing them with lots of babies, though that's certainly what's happening. But the implication here is much more significant than that. God is using his people to raise up hundreds and hundreds of new believers in this place, and he's not slowing down. He is blessing this community in such a way that they are producing generations upon generations of people who put their faith and trust in this God. I mean, don't miss what's happening here. God is building his church, and he is doing that expressly through believers. Do you follow me? And it's really quite interesting. There are these three phrases that are used to describe how God advances his kingdom. Moses says of these people, they were fruitful, they multiplied, and they filled the land. It might interest you to know that those same phrases actually appear elsewhere together in Genesis 1 when God first creates human beings. Listen to what Moses writes in Genesis 1, 27 to 28. He says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Those three phrases. I want you to notice that from the very beginning, God makes people in his own image. That is, he creates people with the intention that they would reflect his likeness and his character to the rest of the world. And then he determines to bless his people and increase them in such a way that the whole world might subsequently be filled with the knowledge of him. Do you understand? That's what this kingdom is all about. That's what the church in every age, in every stage is all about. God is building a nation of people who will reflect to the world what it means to know him and trust him by faith. 
And from the very earliest pages of the Bible to present day, Moses wants you to know that God is always advancing this kingdom. So take heart. This is Moses' first point. You know, secondly, I think Moses wants to remind us also that God is always defending His kingdom. He's shown us that God has a commitment to advancing His kingdom. Now in the face of suffering and persecution, He wants to assure us that God will not abandon His people. Look with me at verses 8 to 11. Moses writes, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It's worth remembering that up until this point, the people of Israel and Egypt have enjoyed a fairly good relationship. And a large part of that was due to Joseph and how he had provided for Egypt and his people during seven-year famine. It was an important event that secured him and his people some measure of favor with the Egyptian people. But then all of a sudden, a new king comes to power who does not know Joseph. The language is a bit peculiar, but scholars think that this king isn't simply ignorant of Joseph and his contributions. No. More likely, it seems that this king has simply refused to acknowledge the tangible benefits that God's people have brought to the land of Egypt. Enough time has now passed that he begins to wonder whether the potential cost of these people outweighs any potential benefit. And so he consults with his advisors and determines that the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Verse 9, come, he says, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. What's happening here? Well, scholars note that the area where the Israelites live called Goshen was situated in the northernmost territory of Egypt. It was actually considered a strategic location from which many of the country's enemies sought to invade. And given that context, Pharaoh probably believes these Israelites may join forces with one of Egypt's enemies and come and fight against them. I mean, he sincerely believes that his family is of shepherds and farmers. Shepherds and farmers mean to unite, turn against him, and destroy his nation which is quite ironic if you think about it, because that is not at all what these people have been tasked to do. Remember, God has determined that He is going to bless His people so that they can become what? A blessing to the nations. And so God brings these people to Egypt so that they might do just that, bless the nation and help it flourish. You can read about that in Genesis. And yet the head of this nation and its culture determines that these people are not a blessing at all. They are instead a threat to society. And therein lies the problem. Because in the eyes of the world, the people of God are often not perceived as a blessing, are they? Rather, as this passage shows us, they are most often regarded as a threat. If you're here and exploring the Christian faith, I would imagine it's quite possible that you share some of these same sentiments about the church and its people. In fact, in a recent 2022 survey, the Angus Reid Institute asked Canadians candidly about their feelings towards religion. What they found was that for three religions in particular, Catholicism, Evangelical Christianity, and Islam, 
Canadians were more likely to believe their presence is damaging to society than beneficial. But for other religions like Hinduism, Sikhism, and Judaism, positive assessments generally outweighed the negative ones. However, what was maybe the most fascinating discovery out of all of this was that among the religions listed, only evangelical Christianity was seen as more damaging to society than beneficial by every other self-identified religious group. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? I mean, whether you're religious or irreligious in this country, everyone seems to unanimously agree that Christianity is the biggest threat facing society. Which should make us ask the question, are they correct? Are they correct? Are we a blessing or are we a threat? The answer, yes and yes. Let me explain. I think we have to recognize that the church is not a perfect people. We have most certainly done things that throughout history that go against the teachings and the spirit of the faith. Our culture, I think, knows that all too well. And I think we have to own that as part of our history. Absolutely. Absolutely. However, at the same time, I think it would only be fair that we also own those ways that the church has been a blessing to society. Because just like Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, I do think our culture has a tendency to forget the tangible benefits that the gospel has brought to the world. I mean, you may not know this, but Christianity is responsible for the development of many great institutions. Things like hospitals, universities, orphanages, and public education itself. It has made significant contributions to the world in terms of art, science, music, literature, law, and ethics. It gave greater equality and freedom to women before that was even a thing. It elevated the status of children. It gave certain dignity to the poor and the marginalized. It gave compassion to the sick and the elderly. And it was instrumental in putting an end to the slave trade. Basically, if you can believe it, the world you know would be a very different place were it not for the gospel. My point really is this. There are institutions and services that our city benefits from every day without ever recognizing their Christian origins. Whether it's the YMCA, or the SBCA, or indeed the Chick-fil-A. <laughs> God's people have blessed the world in some pretty significant ways, amen? <laughs> I think this text would affirm that. God has made us a blessing. And yet, and yet, it is also the case that what the gospel teaches and what the gospel values threatens to undermine the very fabric of the society we live in. Whatever anyone may think about our behavior and practices, the fact is that our beliefs will always stir up enmity with the culture we live in. And we ought not to be surprised by that fact. Make no mistake, the idea that the Bible is God's word without error and that Jesus is the only way to salvation is hugely offensive to the culture that we live in. 
It determines what we believe about gender, sexuality, marriage, abortion, and euthanasia, to name just a few things. And that will always be perceived as quote-unquote damaging to society. You see, I think what Moses is teaching us here is that the kingdom of God will always encounter opposition. Throughout the pages of the Bible, the Christian is constantly forced to wrestle with this very tension, and it is this, Grace Toronto, that although you are commanded to be a blessing to others, the world will most certainly not treat you that way. But you can take heart. Because as Moses reminds us, God is always defending his kingdom. Let me show you. Look at me at verses 11 to 14. Pharaoh determines that God's people need to be controlled, oppressed, and reduced by any means necessary. And what you begin to see in this passage is this mounting level of unjust aggression towards the people of God. Pharaoh puts taskmasters over the people to afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 11. He ruthlessly makes the people of Israel work as slaves, verse 12. He makes their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. But it doesn't work. He is not able to keep this community from multiplying and advancing. In fact, miraculously, the very opposite is true. Moses writes that the more they were oppressed... The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. I mean, this is just crazy. This is just crazy. The whole purpose of Pharaoh's plan, you may remember, was to deal shrewdly with these people, lest they multiply. Verse 10, that's what he's most concerned about. And the irony of this situation is that somehow, against all odds, these people are now even more numerous than they were before. I mean, if that sounds unbelievable to you, it's because it is. Moses wants you to know that this would not be possible under ordinary circumstances. There's something else at work. In fact, if you were to read this text carefully, you'll notice that God isn't even mentioned in the passage for the first 16 verses. Did you notice that? Did you notice that? I think that's so intentional. I think Moses is telling you the story from the perspective of a person like Pharaoh who is purely seeing the facts and doesn't understand what he is truly up against. He thinks that he's simply fighting natural processes. But the further into the story you go, you begin to realize there's nothing natural about the way this kingdom is growing. God is so clearly caring for it, advancing it, and defending it against all odds. And the rest of this book, I think, will make that abundantly clear. Ironically, it is God who is dealing shrewdly with Pharaoh. Do you follow me? Because it's at this point in our story where things start to take a really dark turn. Pharaoh is furious, and he decides to stop this multiplication at the very source. And so he speaks with two Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Pua, and commands them to kill every newborn male. I mean, this is, this is just sick. This is just sick. Even if you're not a Christian listening to this, you have to admit that this is utterly deplorable. There is nothing good about this. 
And yet, once again, God seems to thwart the plans of Pharaoh. God both protects his people and protects the midwives from Pharaoh's wrath. As a result, Moses concludes in verse 20 that God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, very strong. Amazing, isn't it? Three times Pharaoh attempts to oppose God's purposes, and three times he fails. Don't get me wrong, the people are still suffering, still in slavery. But Moses wants you to know that they are being supernaturally helped. God's kingdom is continuing to grow despite all kinds of persecution, hardship, and suffering. In fact, the most startling truth about the Bible might just be this, that God, in His mysterious wisdom, actually seems to allow this kind of suffering to shape the course of His church throughout the ages. This is certainly true about the early church in Acts. And you can believe it, it is very much true of many churches around the world today. Jesus Himself says in John 15, if the world hates you, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And here's the kicker, men and women. Jesus concludes, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Which means this, if you are a Christian. You ought to expect that a certain amount of opposition will always accompany the advancement of the gospel in this city. It is almost certainly guaranteed, and we ought to be aware of that. Here at Grace Toronto, we pride ourselves on being a church that is intellectual, culturally sophisticated, and apologetic. But what if we weren't? This text seems to imply that at some point, all the cultural capital we are experiencing will one day run out. And when it does, it may not be because we did something wrong or we're somehow less relevant, but maybe because this is precisely what Jesus promised would happen. What if one day the city woke up and decided that it had had enough of us? Would that surprise you? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. You need to understand that our church in our present moment is unusual. Christians have always been persecuted. We are the outliers in the history of the gospel. It would be strange to millions of believers around the world that we have a building and we can even worship freely on Sunday morning. Millions of Christians throughout history have never had that privilege. And here's the really interesting part of the gospel. Suffering and persecution actually seems pretty essential to the advancement of God's kingdom for reasons that we don't understand. The more pressure that a culture puts on the gospel, the more persecution the church faces, the more it actually seems to grow. In the 1980s, China used to have a Christian population of about three million people. Since then, the government has imprisoned tortured, and persecuted the country's believers. It drove the church underground. 
and yet it is estimated that there are now nearly a hundred million Christians in China. Experts say that the country may soon have more Christians than any other place in the world. Why? I think this text has the answer. It is as Moses writes in verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. You see, in some mysterious way, persecution and suffering cannot curtail the kingdom of God. In fact, for reasons we can't fully comprehend, suffering seems to be the way that God chooses to advance this kingdom. How do I know that to be the case? How do we know that to be the case? It's because history tells us that God sent His Son, Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to suffer on our behalf. The Apostle Paul tells us that this Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant or slave. The Gospel tells us that he was afflicted with heavier burdens than that of Egypt because God determined that he would carry the full weight of our sins at the cross. In doing so, he entered into all our misery and affliction, and the Bible says he freed us from a much deeper enslavement to sin. He died the death that we deserved, that by believing in him we might be forgiven and have entrance into the kingdom that he is inaugurating. That's what this passage is about. And this is the wonderful news of the gospel that we get to celebrate every Sunday, church. Every Sunday. You see, it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we ultimately go, no, that God's kingdom will never, ever fail. Well, what can we say of this passage? What might God be calling us to do in response to what we've heard? Well, I think this word that was true for these people so long ago is now all the more true for us in light of Jesus Christ. God is still advancing His kingdom and God is still defending His kingdom. And if you're here this morning and you're curious about the Christian faith, I want to invite you to take just one step and consider what this kingdom might mean for you. We have an Alpha class that begins this week on Thursday evening that is specifically intended for people who have questions about the Bible, Jesus, and Christianity as a whole. We would love to have you come, journey with us, and ask your questions. You can find more information about this in our bulletin and our website, and we would love to see you there. Please come. For the Christian here, I think you have a unique opportunity to partner with the God who multiplies. You do. As a member of this kingdom, God desires that you would be fruitful in all that you do, in all that you do, and that you would multiply and fill this city with the knowledge of Him. In the context of the New Testament, that means that you are tasked with making disciples and multiplying the faith. Whether that's in the raising of your own children in the Lord or in the spreading of the gospel in your spheres of influence, you need to hear that God desires you to advance His kingdom. He wants to advance His kingdom through you. So find ways to be the blessing that God has intended you to be and God has intended us to be in this city. Labor for the people of Toronto and their salvation. Pray for multiplication. 
and God should call you to it. Be willing to suffer gladly for the sake of the gospel. Because in doing so, you will show the world its inherent value. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, this passage that is written so very long ago but is still timeless and relevant for the church today. We thank you that you are always advancing your kingdom and you are always defending your kingdom. And we pray that you would help us to participate in the kingdom that you are inaugurating, to work hard at it, to obey you, to live by faith. And we ask that the whole entire city of Toronto and everyone who doesn't yet know you would come to their faith and trust in you. We pray for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's at this point in our service that we may have some time for Q&A, looking at Rex to... Sure. Okay. Yeah, I think we have time for uh, one question, uh, one or two questions. Uh, first question is, um, I understand that getting persecuted is something we should expect, but what is the balance of just waiting until we are persecuted versus fighting back against worldly demonic ideas pushed forward in our society, uh, such as perhaps uh, gender issues or um, abortion. That's a very good question. I don't have a full answer for that. I think these things are very complex, and uh, we're not just to go waiting and beating up people with our Bibles, but uh, it's important that we have a nuanced understanding of some of these things and to think about them well to engage well with the culture. So I think first, it might be helpful to do some research on those things and even consider what the Bible says about those things. We are a broad church with a broad membership and maybe we don't all agree on the same things, but it'd be important for you to think about what the Bible does say about those things before you engage. Um, I don't think this, this is saying that you go looking for a fight, not at all, um, but I do think this, this word is saying that you be faithful uh, should the fight come to you that you be a faithful witness to the word of Jesus Christ and that you be unashamed of it. Uh, so I hope that's helpful. I'd be happy to engage more about that. That's the best I can do without knowing your specific situation, but happy to chat more. Yeah. I think that's all the time we have, so thank you, Tarek. Okay. Well, if you would uh, please rise for our song of response.